You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the MIT Alumni Books podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. Dr. Anne-Marie Thomas, MIT class of 2001, is an associate professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Engineering. Her new book, Making Makers, Kids, Tools, and the Future of Innovation, was published last fall by Maker Media. It's a book for parents and for kids, but also one for adults who, for one reason or another, stop tinkering and working with their hands to make things at some young age. Here is an excerpt. Personally, I built my academic career on the importance of play. A few years into a tenure-track faculty position teaching engineering, I realized that as much as I cared about my research topic at the time, projects related to design for aging, it was through PK-12 education and, in particular, technological literacy that I believed I personally could make the biggest impact in the world. So I traded in my lab full of walker parts and scheduled nursing home visits for, quite literally, paint, clay, and preschoolers. In the process of teaching college-level engineering classes, I was seeing a lot of basic misunderstandings about how electricity and circuits work. At the time, my daughter was nearing her first birthday, and I tried to imagine how I might teach her about circuitry. While makers like Leah Beakley were doing amazing things with sewn and painted circuits, I wanted something even easier to work with. Thus, I challenged a first-year engineering student, Samuel Johnson, to work with me for a summer to develop sculptable circuits. After diving into established scientific literature, such as a thousand and one things to do with your toddler on a rainy day, we managed to fill our lab space with brightly hued variety of Play-Dohs, covering a wide range of textures, smells, and varying levels of electrical resistance. By the end of the summer, Samuel and I had developed recipes for conductive and non-conductive non-toxic Play-Doh, and squishy circuits were born. These days, we're delighted to note that the squishy circuits are used in schools and museums around the world. Our goal, which seems to have been met, was to invite children of all ages to play with circuits. Anne-Marie Thomas, thanks for joining me. A book about the childhoods of makers. Why write this book now? You know, I'm an engineering professor um, and an entrepreneurship professor, and I, I realized over the years that many of my students were coming in and really hadn't spent a lot of time taking things apart and building things and, you know, really playing with technology and tools as kids. And as a parent myself, I became really curious about what the childhoods of the people that I grew up admiring were like, you know, people who went on to put things on the moon or create innovations that we, we spent a lot of time talking about. You know, I wanted to make sure that my kids and my, my students got some of those experiences, but first I had to figure out what those experiences were. You interviewed dozens of makers in various industries and in academia around the world. The book uh, takes us through their stories, but also you asked them all to submit pictures, it looks like, from their childhoods, one of the most endearing parts of the book. That must have been an obstacle, uh, waiting for all of those to come in. Uh, what else got in the way of writing the book? You know, mostly it was time. Pictures are easy. Um, it, the nice thing is that if a, if a maker doesn't have pictures of themselves or want to share them as a kid, all of their parents have saved them. So I, I, I met moms and dads of quite a few of the people that we see on the news for their, their technological innovations. Um, I think for me, really, the thing starting out was figuring out whether there was a cohesive thread among the stories. I did about 70 interviews, and before I started them, you know, I, I was curious, will, will there be any similarities? And I was actually kind of shocked to find out that, that over and over, regardless of where people grew up or what era they grew up, a lot of the same things were important to these, these adults when they looked back at their own childhood. So you narrow down on seven or eight characteristics that all exactly. makers yep. had, had in common. My favorite chapter was risk, hearing about some of the things that went wrong in, in childhoods of makers and how some of them might be billed as terrorists, given the amount of uh, gunpowder they played with. And how surprising to learn there was an atomic set for children and a, and a chemistry set for children with actual chemicals in it. 
but are we missing those you know kind of risky products these days on the shelves? You know, it's a hard thing as a parent to look at, right? Because we're quite lucky that some of those makers made it through their childhoods. Ironically, I learned that the MIT professor who taught me how to be safe in the shop, Woody Flowers in mechanical engineering, um, was quite an avid rocket uh, rocket builder as a child and had a couple of near misses um, that really kind of shaped his future and how he taught other people to use things safely in a shop. I do think that we prevent a lot of kids from taking risks. And if you don't take small risks, you don't really learn which risks are acceptable and which you can handle. Chrissy Canada, who is a biology alum from MIT, she's been teaching her kids, she says, to do dangerous things safely, uh, which I think is a very powerful concept. How do you do dangerous things safely? Um, because everything from crossing the street to, you know, to cutting your food, to cooking your food, um, can carry some risk. But I do think we've, we've tried as a culture to prevent kids from taking risk and thinking that that's safer, but really by not letting them learn their own limits from a young age, I, I would argue that we're actually making things more dangerous. And talk about some of the MIT alumni featured in the book. There was one from, even from your class who you had, had not known. Was it Holly Gates? <laughs> Holly Gates, yeah. I think Holly is a year or two ahead of me. Holly had probably the most interesting childhood. Um, there's some great pictures, he said. Holly actually grew up on a boat, and his parents were working on building a boat, and the boat was in dry dock. So Holly really grew up watching his parents make things, and Holly, very early on, was, as he put it, you know, zapping things and testing things out. You know, he was the kind of kid who made his own homemade Tesla coil. Um, and he, he, interestingly, has gone on, probably my favorite blog of all blogs right now is Holly's blog, um, Tooling Up. Holly is an electrical engineer, but he and his kids live a pretty, some would say, low-tech life where... They use, they use very little power. They are doing their own gardening. They're, they're making their own clothing. And by using those sort of tools, he's really being forced to stop and, and think about what his family consumes and what, how his family interacts with the things they use. Um, it's a very fascinating story. So someone who's very high-tech by day, and we would probably many people would categorize as low-tech the rest of the time, but really allowing him to pause and think about his interaction with technology and tools. Then there's a fair share of non-MIT alumni in the book. What did you learn about other higher ed institutions and how they engender being a maker? Well, you know, I think that the interesting thing was many of, many of the, the makers in the book, some went to MIT, some didn't go to college. Um, some dropped out. Some went to liberal arts schools. What I found more than anything, that it was this kind of self-sufficiency um, and willingness to be persistent and ask lots of questions that really drove these makers. They weren't all straight-A students. Um, similarly, they weren't all drop, dropping out of school and hating school. Some liked it, some didn't. Some were avid readers. Um, I heard lots and lots of stories of books from people who went on to do great things, but then I also heard from people who had a really hard time reading. Um, for example, Dean Kamen from Decker Research and uh, creator of First Robotics in the iBot wheelchair, Dean had struggled reading as a kid and so you know was never the top student in the class. So I think that, that's an interesting lesson is that there really aren't any, there isn't a test that can tell us who these makers are going to be. There's not a standard grade or a metric. It's more looking at the sense of passion that they all had and curiosity. I think curiosity more than anything um, and letting them really pursue their own path. None of these makers really wanted to do exactly what they were told. Usually when I give talks and I ask people if they remember something they made as a kid, everybody does. And then I say, well, for all, how many of you was the thing that you made exactly like what everyone else in your class made, where you're following exactly the directions? And very rarely do I get more than one or two hands for that. Um, people are really proud of being able to take their own path. Um, and I think that's something 
that particularly PK through 12 education is grappling with right now and figuring out how to let students really bring some of this creativity and self-guided learning back into their studies. Industry is doing its part. You talk about some young makers who went on to developing kits for children. There was actually a really touching story about Meccano. There is Luke Mayrand, who is a Disney Imagineer. He worked, I won't give away the story, but how he got his Meccano as a kid is probably one of the greatest stories of persistence that I came across in the book. And to this day, when I interviewed him um, many, many years later, I interviewed him via Skype for the book. And partway through it, he said, oh, wait, actually, and turned his camera. And on his wall was a, a model for a future ride that was built using the same Meccano he had gotten as a kid. So I thought that was a that was a touching a touching little moment. Um, many makers were showing me their Legos. I do think sometimes the simplest tools are the best ones. Uh, a lot of people talked about found materials less so than formal kits. Um, there are some great kits out there. I talked a bit with Lenore Edmond, who is one of the founders at Eagle Mad Science Lab. That creates lots of fantastic little electronic kits. Um, that I do some of them with my own kids. Um, but I think more and more. So many kids are being given kits with instructions or being parents are looking to buy the perfect tools to teach their kids something and giving them less of the freedom that would come from handing them some random parts and a lot of duct tape and uh, maybe a hammer. Talk about some of the current projects in your playful learning lab at University of St. Thomas. So I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. My students in the playful learning lab at St. Thomas come from a variety of disciplines, uh, mostly engineering, electrical and mechanical, but, but quite a few from education um, in our engineering education program. And they're all undergraduates, with the exception of a few master's students who are art history students. And we really look at the interface between learning and play and engineering and technology. Um, so examples of this, this summer, we, we're doing a series of uh, summer camps for uh, young um, youngsters, sixth grade, rising sixth graders, with the St. Paul Public Libraries, and through that we're doing um, art bots, so building little robots that can create art, and then using laser cutters to create wooden frames for them. Um, in the same vein as some of our squishy circuits work, how can we how can we embed technology and craft and really let kids learn by doing, um, but also use it as a form of self-expression? Um, we also look at things like the engineering circus. Um, so we, we have some students who are who are putting sensors on the flying trapeze and then people on the flying trapeze to look at ways we can use that to teach physics because it's surprising how many circus schools there actually are in the U.S. There's quite a few by MIT and, and about four within an hour of my house in Minnesota. And finally, we've been working a lot with chefs and looking at ways we can use design and food to both uh, help kids who are looking at the nutrition and biology of it but also the design aspects um, and the artistic and cultural aspects of it as well. And then a lot of the output is in, done in conjunction with K-12 schools. Um, so we work very closely with a school in Minnesota for deaf children. Um, I, I'm fortunate to have a bunch of engineering students who can sign. So one day a week we teach engineering at the Metro Deaf School um, in St. Paul. How do you call upon your ocean engineering degree from MIT at all in this work? <laughs> So sadly, my, my ocean engineering days, um, they, they, they aren't as obvious. I, I was out surfing this morning. I'm on a trip to New Jersey, so I guess that kind of counts, um, but doesn't count as much for my research. Um, and, you know, I would, I would say I think what I gained most from ocean engineering at MIT is it was a really hands-on program. I always tell people it's a little bit mechanical engineering, a little bit electrical, a little bit computer science, and then we get really good at waterproofing and all. Um, and I think that, that actually that, that translates to a lot of the things that I learned in the book as well. One of my favorite stories. Well, they're all my favorite stories, but Paul McGill, who's a researcher at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, 
you know, he, he's done some pretty amazing things. When you're out at sea and something breaks, there, there isn't a radio shack. There isn't, there isn't a master car right down the street if you're out at sea in the Arctic or Antarctic. And seeing some of these engineers and makers be able to create functional robots from literally scraps on boats. Um, so, so I'd like to think I still have a little bit of the, the scrappy, figure it out, get it done, regardless of what parts you have around you, sense that I think many of us in ocean engineering had. Um, but I do think my, my formal uh, sending robots out to sea days are probably over. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the, the blog Tooling Up. Can you talk about some other things that you're reading right now? I, I have to admit, my daughter, particularly my first grader, is an avid reader. So we, we do lots of lots of Harry Potter reading in our house. And to me, in some ways, actually, the Harry Potter books tie in really nicely with the things in, in the research I did on making, this kind of sense of kids' empowerment and solving their own problems. Um, I just read a great book actually yesterday on called Do No Harm on a neurosurgery. Um, in the summer, I love to kind of read anything because I think if there's anything I've learned, it's that you never know where the next great project's coming from, and you never know what kind of collaboration is going to be most most rewarding for the students and for and for research. Um, if anyone had told me when I was an ocean engineer at MIT that I was going to get tenure based probably mostly on Plato, I probably would have laughed. But you never know. You never know where those things end up. You know, spending your day with with circus performers and and preschool teachers and lots and lots of Plato. Our lab has lots of Plato. Um, you know, it, it's fun, um, and I think it, it also is sort of the nature of innovation and engineering in general is that to do something new, you have to be willing to try to combine things that haven't been combined before. Your quote early in the book sums that up nicely. Is it the creative adult is a child who has survived? Right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it's true that 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 really maybe I misnamed the book. One of my interview subjects, Amon Milner, who is an MIT alum, lifelong kindergarten lab, and now a professor at Olin College. He said, well, you know, maybe it's not making makers because every every child is a maker. What what you're really talking about, Emory, is trying to maintain makers, trying to keep the makers, not not let them lose that 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 spark as they get older. And I think that's very true. Emory Thomas's new book, Making Makers, Kids, Tools, and the Future of Innovation, is available online or at your favorite local bookstore. Anne Marie, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much.